0: Hello, and welcome to The P-Value, a podcast about science, philosophy, and everything in between. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Brown, and today we're talking about the role of scientists in the public sphere. We live in interesting times. Although we have more information at our fingertips than any other humans in history, we are also, depending on who you ask, least able to trust the information in our environment. From the sheer mass of information that we have available to us to the number of falsehoods sitting innocently right by truth within that mass of information, it's sometimes incredibly hard to know what is and what is not true and who to trust. This is not a mere epistemic or theoretical crisis, though. A lack of trust and reliable information has already had all sorts of nasty social consequences. Misinformation and shoddy science about childhood vaccinations has led to significant increases in diseases like measles and whooping cough, with dire consequences for some of the children involved. The preponderance of fake news and information about climate change has contributed to what's arguably the greatest political failure of our time, in our inability to get large-scale climate action. And then, during COVID times, We've seen all sorts of fake and dubious science being peddled on the public with real social harm. So where do scientists sit within all of this? What role, if any, should scientists play in fighting misinformation? Do they have any moral obligation or responsibility as advocates or even public policy makers? In a recent Nature commentary, a group of human geneticists motivated by the misuse of their research in a white supremacist manifesto argued that geneticists needed to push back against the weaponization and politicisation of their research. Pointing to several recent findings on global genetic diversity and ancient human migration, which had been appropriated by neo-Nazis and others to justify their cause, the geneticists noted that this was only the most recent salvo in a long history of misappropriation of research by the far right, a misappropriation which seems to have ramped up in the era of the internet. As the COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated to us all, the ease of access to scientific papers and the wide reach of social media make it really easy for misinformation based either in poor science or the misinterpretation of good science to spread rapidly and to a really wide audience. Whilst the geneticists are right here, the age of the internet has changed the face of science and its relationship with the public. It is important to recognize that the long history of the misuse of genetics and evolutionary biology is born out of some dubious parts of the science itself. Several key scientists within evolutionary biology and genetics were involved in the human eugenics movements of the 19th and early 20th century and held views which were undeniably racist. Indeed, a great deal of the contemporary racist discourse harks back to this era, to something known as scientific racism. Scientific racism is the attempt to use the methods and legitimacy of science to defend white supremacist views, and particularly the notion of there being fundamental and immutable differences between human groups on the basis of so-called race. This sort of racial essentialism has been thoroughly debunked scientifically. Human diversity is rich Gradually, nature and overlapping, and there's no biological basis to race. put simply, there's no characteristic or set of characteristics of any subpopulation of the great complexity of humanity on earth that allows us to carve up that complexity into anything like a racial grouping or the sort of racial grouping that far-right activists rely on whilst biological race is an illusion, it doesn't follow that there's nothing of value to be found in looking at diversity and variation within the human genome. For example, because of the nature of inheritance and mutation, our genes offer us a way of reconstructing the history of human movement across the globe. Whilst we share the vast majority of our genes, small geographic distances are reflected in small divergences in genomes, and this can be used to pinpoint when historical migrations occurred and their nature. It's unsurprising both given the content and the history that the work of geneticists on human genetic diversity is of interest to those who want to argue for the existence of intrinsic human difference. What is surprising, perhaps, is that science isn't well-equipped to deal with the challenge that this sort of misappropriation brings. While scientists, editorial boards, research groups and so on have all released statements making clear that the far-right misrepresents their research, This alone, at least according to the geneticists talking in Nature, is not enough. First, the geneticists say, scientists need to think carefully about the data sets they choose to use. Less diverse data is more likely to produce results which downplays the depths of human diversity in the world, the exact sort of results which white supremacists want to use. Second, researchers should consider how they present their analysis in publications. With the ease of sharing images, it's infographics and figures that are frequently being appropriated by the far right and used out of context to support their racist claims. Thus, say the geneticists in Nature, these visualisations need to be made in ways that make them less susceptible to misinterpretation when removed from the text around them. Finally, they argue that open access is fueling part of this problem and that the use of preprint and other open access servers needs to be reconsidered at an individual and community level. What do you think? Should scientists change how they work and communicate because of the risk of misuse of their research? One of the key issues raised by the human genetics example is the role of scientists as communicators and advocates. Is there any moral obligation on human geneticists to ensure good communication of their work? What about engaging beyond science with the public about their work? Should they do that? Must they? Some argue no. Scientists are not at all morally obliged to be advocates, and indeed, perhaps they shouldn't be. Sir Paul Nurse, geneticist, Nobel Prize winner and former president of the Royal Society, says of this, It is essential in public issues to separate science from politics and ideology. Get the science right first, then discuss the political implications. Here, Nurse draws a sharp line between the scientist and the public policymaker, with advocacy firmly on the public policy side of the ledger. There are several reasons one could give for such a position. First, and perhaps most obviously, advocacy looks to conflict with the norms of good science, such as disinterestedness and objectivity. We've dealt with this sort of move before on the pod when talking about inductive risk and the value-free ideal of science. Alas, whilst intuitively appealing, there's good reason to think that the value-free ideal isn't tenable in practice. There are many situations in which it seems morally required for scientists to consider the implications of their research or finding. The human genetics example from earlier, here it seems that geneticists who are presenting work which could be misappropriated by white supremacists should, arguably, have a higher bar for publication or accepting those results than scientists researching something less socially consequential, like the nature of dark matter. Those interested in these kinds of arguments should go back a couple of episodes in the pod for more detail. Another reason to reject the idea of scientists as advocates, which is related but more instrumentally motivated, concerns the credibility of science. Scientists are typically cast as the objective purveyors of truth in society, and well might we ask if they can play that role adequately whilst also being activists. Indeed, one only need look at the level of vitriol and distrust in the debates about climate science to suggest that advocacy may not necessarily be in the best interests of scientific progress or social benefit. In that context, climate change sceptics often point to the role of scientists in advocating for climate action as a reason to distrust their objectivity. Efficiency and effectiveness offer a further reason to reject the moral obligation of scientists to be advocates. Advocacy is time consuming, and scientists are already time poor. Moreover, are they really the best people to do this job? Most scientists lack the training and knowledge required to be good advocates, and any advocacy work they do is going to take them away from their research. Given this, It seems fair to ask whether advocacy, whilst clearly an important job, should be their job. All these arguments generate a really strong division of labour between science and society. On this sort of picture, scientists as individuals and as a community are the ones responsible for producing good science, no more, no less. And society, on the other hand, is responsible for ensuring that the results of that research are communicated well and put to good use. What do you think of this type of picture? Do you think that scientists really shouldn't be advocates? One reason to be sceptical about the sort of view just outlined is that we have so many good examples of scientists advocates that have been incredibly effective. Whilst, of course, some scientists have lost credibility through their advocacy, not naming names, you know who you are, many others have not. Think of Jane Goodall, Gus Nossel, Brian Schmidt, Ian Fraser, Elizabeth Blackburn, Peter Doherty, I could go on. These are all champions of science who have the trust of the public. Not only do we have stellar examples of credible science advocates but we also have examples of the power of such advocacy. Think of the great impact of the advocacy of marine scientist Rachel Carson in the 1960s. Her book, Silent Spring, which led to the banning of DDT, remains a classic. I still get students coming up to me having been inspired by her writing to work in conservation. The work of exemplary science advocates just outlined makes clear that good science advocacy is possible and can be really effective. Perhaps what's missing then is giving scientists the time and training to be able to do it. Some argue that scientists as citizens, and privileged ones at that, are morally obliged to advocate to their best ability in the interest of helping society. For them not to advocate is, on this kind of view, to reject a fundamental responsibility of any citizen of any democracy. As far back as the Greeks, it's been thought that active participation in processes of deliberation and decision-making is a fundamental part of being a citizen rather than a subject. Thus, scientists have a moral obligation, first as good citizens, second as good scholars, and third as science. Their commitment as good citizens must override their scientific and scholarly interests. To quote author Susan Sontag on being an activist in Sarajevo during the siege, Activism, strictly speaking, is what I do as a citizen and human being, and that has nothing to do with being a writer. Now, while scientists have some sort of obligation simply as citizens, it's not clear that it conflicts their role as scientists, and even that they don't have a greater responsibility as experts. Indeed, we pretty much all agree we want our public policy to be informed by our best science, but Empirically informed public policy doesn't just require more fact to become available to public policy makers it requires interpretive work interpretive work which scientists arguably are uniquely placed to carry out the moral obligation on scientists advocates here is twofold not only are they valuable public advocates but they are also required interpretive gatekeepers for scientific knowledge without them science ends up having limited public and practical value. And this leads us back around to the human genetics case and the urgency of this dilemma. One of the striking features of that case is the power of new forms of communication to be used for misinformation. The fact is that this goes well beyond human genetics. Important scientific work in all sorts of fields from the pandemic response to climate change, isn't adequately reaching those who can use it in the interests of positive change. And it's arguably the moral responsibility of scientists, therefore, to be more forceful in communicating the important implications of their research to the public than ever before. What do you think? Can scientists play a role in combating false information? Should they? been listening to The P-Value. The P-Value is an initiative of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University. I'm your host, Dr Rachel Brown. Bye-bye for now.